ahead and open up to Ezra chapter 7. We're going to be in verse, uh, verses chapter 7 and 8 this morning. And as you turn there, it is so interesting how God works and how themes come up. Here's my opening question for you. How important is the Bible? Very. That's a, that's a great starting point. Well, there's my whole sermon, actually. Very. Okay. It, the reason this is really interesting is that this is the topic I ended up talking on in Sunday school, in adult Sunday school this morning, because we didn't get to it all last week. And so uh, we had to bring it up today. And it's come up, as Bill said in his prayer, it's come up several times in worship. How important is the Bible? You know, many Christians, individuals, and churches collectively are de-emphasizing or downplaying the need for scripture. It seems like there's this trend toward sort of a, a life coach approach. Let me just help you with what you're struggling with and, and just kind of help you along the way. We try to be encouraging. And so when we look at scripture and there are parts that just don't seem as encouraging as other parts. And so those can be ignored or worse, they can be denied. Well, that's not really the word of God. Sometimes people say, I don't like what it says. Therefore, that's not really God's word to me. You know, there's one popular preacher several years ago that said we should unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. That was his words. He looked at the Old Testament. He said there are things there that are difficult and they're keeping people from coming to know Jesus as their Savior. So let's unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Let's not deal with the Old Testament. We don't need it anymore. It's what this preacher said. And I profoundly and firmly disagree. What do we do with passages like 2 Timothy 3.16? All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul did not have a mentality that we get to pick and choose from Scripture. Because if we have that mentality, where do you stop? Why stop at the Old Testament? Why not go to some of the difficult sayings of Jesus and say, well, those no longer apply anymore? Why not go to some of the things that Paul wrote or James or John and say, well, I don't really like them. So those don't apply anymore. And this is exactly what a lot of Christians and a lot of churches are doing. This morning, we're continuing our series called God at Work in Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're beginning the second of three major sections. These two books really were originally, it appears, written as a unit or at least combined onto one scroll. Later on, they were divided into two books. But they have very, very common themes. And the first two sections, we just finished the first one. It followed this guy, Zerubbabel, who leads a group of Israelites out of exile back home to Israel, to Jerusalem. And his mission, and the whole part of, or the whole point of the first six chapters of Ezra, is this rebuilding of the temple that had been demolished. Now we're transitioning to the second section, which follows another leader. You might know his name. His name is Ezra. Ezra is the subject of the second part of the book of Ezra. And this part is all about Ezra's mission to teach the law. To teach the law, and we're going to talk about that and how we can expand our understanding of what the law is. It's not just the, the law in terms of the commands in the first five books of Scripture, but it's actually their view of all of Scripture. They would use that term, the law, to refer to all of Scripture. 
Ezra's mission was to teach scripture to God's people. And I want to put an idea in your head. It's a quote that I found in my studying, and I think it's very, very helpful. The author, his name is James Hamilton, and in his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, he states this. Do you want to change the world? I have a strategy for you. It's not something that I made up. It may not sound radical or impressive, but Ezra chapter 7 shows us a man who changed the world by following this very strategy. The most effective thing you can do to change the world is to study the Bible, do the Bible, and teach the Bible. And if I could humbly add one more phrase onto there that I think was assumed but too often gets rejected, it is start by believing the Bible. So often Christians come to Scripture and say, well, do I believe that that's true? And then we mess up everything else. But study the Bible, do the Bible, teach the Bible. So this morning I want to look at how God's, God is at work through his word in the life of Ezra. And we're just going to begin this account and we'll pick it up over the next week or two as we finish the book of Ezra and move into Nehemiah. So we need to start with how Ezra is being prepared by God's word. God begins his work by preparing his people through the word of God. We're going to pick it up in Ezra chapter 7. And I just want to read the first three three words here. You know you're in for a long sermon when we go three words at a time. After these things. All right. Ezra is so very helpful here. After these things. Between Ezra chapter 6, the end of Ezra chapter 6, And Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Between those two chapters, there's about 50 to 60 years. There's a big jump in the timeline. When the first part, Ezra 1 through 6, is written, Ezra was probably a young child or a baby or possibly not even born yet. By the time we get to Ezra 7, he's he's a man, he's grown up, he's, he's, well, we'll read more about him and what he's studied and what he's been doing. Also, All of this in the first six chapters of Ezra, this rebuilding of the temple, that's all been done. It's completed. It's been going on for 50 or 60 years. Their usage of this temple, their worship through this temple, more exiles trickling it at times, coming back to Jerusalem and beginning to reestablish their life there. Interestingly enough, if you're familiar at all with the book of Esther, the book of Esther probably takes place in between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, where Ezra, or Esther rather, this Jewish woman, ends up becoming the queen of Persia through a series of incredible events. You can read that in the book of Esther. But that's where it takes place because these stories or these accounts really overlap. But we have here, even at the beginning of chapter 7, this small ragtag group come back to Jerusalem, working hard to rebuild their life life there. They've rebuilt the temple. They've established their worship of God. And that's been going on. And now Ezra is coming back. And we're going to see how Ezra presents himself. Let's read verses 1 through 10. I'll read it. You can follow along. 
After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, son of Ahidab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, and the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Did you get all that? Did you write that? Let me go through it again. Just kidding. Verse 6, this Ezra... This is like in case you forgot who he was through all this. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to study, to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Now, we learn so much about Ezra. And, and remember who's writing this. Ezra's writing this. Inspired by God. So, we can take this on two levels. What is it that is most important to God for us to know about Ezra? But we can equally, I believe, look at this and say, what is Ezra, what does he consider important for others to know about himself? And first he starts with his lineage. I won't go back and read all those names again. Please don't make me. But Ezra's lineage, basically you can trace it all the way to Aaron. Aaron was the original high priest going all the way back into the Exodus. The original high priest, God chose Aaron and his offspring to be the priestly uh, group in the temple, to perform the temple functions, keeping the temple running. And so Ezra was qualified by his lineage, his, his heritage, to be a priest in the temple. Now Ezra could have stopped there. He could have stopped and just say, hey, see, I'm really important because look at the family I come from. Look at my background. You need to listen to me because of this. But what's interesting is he quickly moves on from his lineage to something else. Look at verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Well-versed in the law of of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. In fact, skip down to verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra wants us to know, and God wants us to know about Ezra, that the single most important thing about him is that he is saturated with the word of God. He has spent his life studying and teaching the word of God. His passion in all things is to teach others the word of God. And that's the theme of this second uh, section of the Ezra and Nehemiah history. They started with the importance of the temple and getting that going. Now we've moved into the importance of God's law. Ezra goes back to Israel to teach people the law of the Lord. Now, what exactly is he talking about? There are two ways that the law is used in Scripture. 
The first, I think, is more obvious. It's the law of Moses. If you've read through Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you know you get to those sections. Here's what to do if you find a spot in your house. Here's how we should worship the Lord. Here's how to set up the tabernacle. There, do this, don't do this. You might be most familiar with the Ten Commandments. This is what the Lord says. This is his law to his people. And absolutely, that is the law. The Israelites would also use the word the law to refer to all of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, which is where the law is contained. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the law. And so that's part of referring to the law. Now, think about how this is so important to God's people. In Genesis, the beginning of the Pentateuch, we learn we're created by God, and yet humanity, Adam and Eve in this case, sinned, they rebelled, they walked away from the Lord, and there becomes this separation between God and his people because his people are sinners, and he is holy. How can sinners know a holy God when everything they do, think, act, imagine is touched by and infected by their sin? God has to take the initiative. God takes the initiative to reach out in a relationship through this man named Abraham and his family. He takes the initiative to form this group, the Israelites. He takes the initiative when they are enslaved in Egypt to bring them out of Egypt. God takes the initiative. And then he brings them in the wilderness to this mountain. And he says, okay, here's the deal. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who did this. And all of the law, all the Ten Commandments and everything after it, it's like God saying, okay, let's talk about what this looks like. There's a few things you need to know in my relationship with you. There are several really important purposes of the law. The law reveals something. It reveals God's character. See, we sinned, we walked away from the Lord, and we get stuck in this little bubble of our own thinking, our own imagining, our own way of doing things, and we just don't know any different. And God reaches in and says, let me tell you about myself. Let me reveal who I am to you. The law reveals what is sin, what is not sin, what is holiness, what is unrighteousness, what is clean, what is not clean. God's law reveals God's character And as a corollary to that, it reveals our own hearts that we are sinners in desperate need of salvation. God's law reveals the price to pay for sin. Maybe you've read through the law at various times. You get to those portions. They talk about animal sacrifices. And it's if you do this, then you need to bring this animal. And if you're this wealthy or this poor, you do this animal or this animal. And you have to break it in this way or kill it in this way. And the blood needs to pour out. And you're just reading these passages going, ugh. And that's good. It's good to read those passages and go, this is disgusting. Do you know why it's disgusting? Because our sin is disgusting. And the payment for sin is life. Life has to be given to pay for sin. Blood has to be spilt to pay for sin. And we would never have understood that if it wasn't for the law of God. God's law also reveals God's purposes. God comes to his people and he says, you are to be different. They are to represent God in this world. They would have no concept how to live differently from the groups around them if God hadn't come to them in grace and said, this is how you are to live. God's law is an act of grace. One other important aspect of God's law is that it restrains sin. 
God's law restrains sin. It keeps things from being as bad as they possibly can be. There are times that God's people, the Jewish people, struggled in their faith, didn't keep the law perfectly, and yet they still didn't necessarily get as bad as they could have possibly have gotten because there was this restraining effect through the law of God. The reason I'm telling you all this is that I think as modern-day Christians, we develop this idea that Old Testament law good, grace and faith in Jesus, or I'm sorry, Old Testament law bad, grace and faith in Jesus Christ good. And, And that's not the way they looked at it. They looked at the law and saw incredible grace. How would they have known this God who loves them if he hadn't revealed himself through the law? How would they know about sin and righteousness? How would they know how they should live? In Psalm 119, David writes this poem. And it's an acrostic. And if you've ever turned or looked at Psalm 119, you'll see these really weird little squiggly designs above each block of text. Those weird squiggly designs are Hebrew letters. In fact, it's the Hebrew alphabet. Some Bibles put it in, some don't. But what David is doing is he's taking the Hebrew alphabet. I'll use the English alphabet because I don't know the Hebrew alphabet. And he starts with A. All of God's word is beautiful. So he starts his section of the poem with that letter. B, behold the work of the Lord. So he writes a poem. He's he's just so overcome with the beauty of God's law that he writes this amazing poem, and it is the single longest chapter in all of Scripture. And I just want to show you Psalm 119, verses 13 to 16. It was just one place we could go to. And he writes this, With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Does David have a picture that law is bad and oppressive and wrong? No, David says this is beautiful. My kids come to me all the time when I say, guys, look, this is a rule in our house. And they come to me and say, Father, I just love the rules you give us. <laughs> we just take such great delight and our hearts are just overcome with joy that you have, have given us the beautiful rules of this. No, they don't do that. <laughs> they look at me and they roll their eyes and they say, really? Or they look at me and say, yeah, we'll see. Maybe I'll agree. Maybe I won't. And we all do that to the Lord as well. But I love this picture in scripture that David looks at, and and this is just representative of how God's people understood the law. It was beautiful. It was gracious. They loved the law of God. They didn't always obey it, but in their heart of hearts, they understood it was a beautiful thing. Another way that this concept of the law is used in scripture is actually to refer to all of scripture. All of it. Because when you understand that God's law was a revelation of who he was, a revealing of what sin is, and God's plan for his people, you start seeing that's not just the given law, do this, don't do that, in the Pentateuch. That's all of Scripture. All of Scripture accomplishes that purpose as well. So look back at Ezra chapter 7. Ezra tells us about his past his lineage, but the most important thing that he wants us to know about him is that he knows God's word. He has been prepared by the word of God 
studied the word of God, seeking to understand it and to draw close to God through his word. He has taught this to others. In fact, that's why he's coming to Jerusalem, to teach others the word of God. Everything else we read about Ezra in the rest of this book of Ezra, and and actually there's some sections in Nehemiah where Ezra appears again, everything is about Ezra's heart and his passion to teach the word of God. And his knowledge of God's word prepares him for the work that God has for him. Now look at the end of verse 6. So we have Ezra, this man who knows the word of God and he's prepared by the word of God. This Ezra, and it tells us about him. Then at the end of the verse, it says, The king, it's the king of Persia, had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. In a moment, in the next chapter, we'll look at what the king of Persia does quickly. I promise you, we're moving through that quick. But what I want you to see here is that Ezra, a man of great faith who knows the word of God, and yet he goes to the king and he asks for very specific things. How did he know what to ask for? Because he knew the word of God. He knew the word of God and can apply it to the situation and say, I know what the people in Israel need. I know what I need to take them, and I'm going to ask the king for this. In 7 through 10, we see that Ezra leads a group of exiles back to Jerusalem. And I love that that statement then at the end of verse 9, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Yes, he's going to get help from a foreign pagan king. But the main reason that all of this is happening is because God is at work. God is orchestrating these events. Ezra is trusting God's word. God is at work and has been through Ezra's life preparing him through the word of God because God changes the world through God's word. God changes the world through God's word. Let's look at the mission that Ezra is sent on. If you look at verses 11 through 28, I'm not going to read all of this. But this is the letter from Artaxerxes, the king, that he sends with uh, Ezra. And here we see Ezra's mission. This is what he's going to do. It's the decree that this horrible king, and again, I feel like I need to emphasize this over and over again. This is not a godly, righteous world leader. We look at this and say, isn't this great? He sided with the Israelites and he's doing something so wonderful and so holy. And yes, he is. He is absolutely being used by God. But he is a horrible individual who had persecuted the Jews in brutal ways. And now he's decided for his best interest to do this. That's Artaxerxes thinking. We know that God is moving his heart to do this. Let's make sure we give God the credit for what he's doing as a world leader and not him. Because his heart is not in the right place. Artaxerxes sends God's Uh, sends Ezra back with this message. And I want to look at a couple places. Basically, you can read this on your own. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. I'm not going to read the whole thing to us. But he's telling them, Ezra and the people with him, that they can go back to Israel. He's going to give them an abundance of gifts, gold. There's a few articles still left over that belong to the temple that they're taking with them. But there's a couple things I want to point out. Uh, Verse 14, you are sent by the king and his seven advisors, this is Artaxerxes talking to Ezra, to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. What does he mean by that? 
You are to go back to Jerusalem in regards to the law of God, which is in your hand. I believe what we're learning here is that Ezra is literally taking a copy of God's word back to Jerusalem. It's very possible that all copies of the word of God had been lost in Jerusalem. That they haven't actually had the text of the word of God. And Ezra is going back and saying they need this. They need somebody to teach them. They need somebody to proclaim this to them. And this is his mission. And the Artaxerxes understands and sends Ezra with this copy of the Old Testament law. This is the whole theme of this second section in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the theme of the second part of this sermon series. God works through God's word. The importance of God's word in the work of God cannot possibly be overstated. Ezra uproots his life, leaves what appears to be a rather comfortable life. It appears he's pretty high up in the court that he can go to Artaxerxes and present these things. He leaves that behind so that he can go and teach this return group of exiles the word of God. Do we have that kind of view of the word of God? That is so important and so necessary. And we look at people and say, you know what they need? They need to know God through God's word. Why does he do this? Because Ezra knows He believes in the core of his being, God works through God's word. Let's look briefly at chapter 8 now. The letter goes on through the end of chapter 7. God, or Ezra rather, gives God praise at the end of uh, chapter 7, verses 27 through 28. He recognizes and thanks the Lord for his favor. And now he gets ready to put these things in motion. And I just want to point out how obedient Ezra is to the word of God. Now, chapter 8 begins with a record of those who went back with him. It is a much longer list of names than what I read earlier, and I'm not going to read it to you. But you can read it there in Exodus chapter 8, or I'm sorry, Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. It lists all the people and their family groups that go back with him. I do want to pick it up in 21 to 23. And right before this, Ezra tells us that he looked at this group of returnees and he sees that there are no other priests among them. He's going to teach the word of God and he knows he's going to need help. The people need to understand the word of God. So he puts out this search to find other priests and he gathers them together and they're going with him. And then we pick it up in verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast. So they're on their way, but they stop. And he proclaims a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our possessions. All these people are uprooting their life. They've got everything they own with them. They've got their children with them. But there's more. He says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this. And he answered our prayer. In the next couple verses, verses 24 to 27, He lists the amount of gold that they have with them, and it is an amazing sum. These people, with no protection from the king, no soldiers, were carrying a treasure with them. 
and the road was filled with thieves. People that would attack wanderers and travelers along their way to steal what they had. And it's interesting that Ezra tells us he did not ask the king for soldiers. He was trusting the Lord. What's interesting about that is if we fast forward to Nehemiah, Nehemiah also goes back to Jerusalem, also is taking a bunch of treasures with him, but he does take soldiers from the king. The reason I'm pointing this out to you is that we need to understand that different people have different convictions and will put their faith in actions at times in different ways. For Ezra, it was trusting God to not have the soldiers with him. For Nehemiah, it was trusting God to have the soldiers with him. Different leaders are faithful to God at times in different ways, but they are both acting out of faith. And then look down at Ezra chapter 8, verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. Ezra said we made it. We made it safely. See, he faced this danger from enemy forces and and thieves from the outside that could have stolen things. But he also understood that he faced a danger from inside. He has the people, specifically the priests, in verses 24 to 27, he has them count all of the gold and write down, and he gives us the accounting of it. He tells them in 28 to 30 to guard it because they're going to count it again when they arrive. In verses 33 to 34, after they arrive, they count it again, and everything is accounted for. And I know this is one of those sections you just kind of like your eyes might glaze over, like, I don't really care. Who cares? Do you understand how important it was for them to be faithful in obedience to their Lord, their God? Ezra took great care to say, let's make sure, guys, we get this right. Let's count everything. Let's count it again when we get there so we can stand up and say, nobody among us has taken anything. Nothing was stolen. We have been faithful to God. He has been faithful to us. You know, after the service, we're going to have a business meeting. And I get it that some people are like, oh, this is just business. It's more secular, kind of mundane work. No, it isn't. Right there in Scripture, keep a careful accounting and show everybody that you have kept a careful accounting. Our accounting of our finance and our budget, which is not the whole point of the the meeting that we're going to have, but it's an important aspect. It is an act of worship and faithful obedience to our God. And I'm so Thankful for the people in our church that labor over these things to make sure that it is correct and that we are being obedient in all things. But the key thing I want you to see in Ezra chapter 8 is that Ezra takes his obedience seriously. He believes the word of God and so he wants to be faithful to God's word. Friends, God works through God's word. When God's people trust God's word, When we learn God's word, when we are saturated by God's word, God does amazing things through his people. I want to reread that quote I read to you earlier. Do you want to change the world? I have a strategy for you. It's not something that I made up. It may not sound radical or impressive, but Ezra chapter 7, and I would add chapter 8, shows us a man who changed the world by doing this very strategy. The most effective thing you can do to change the world is to study the Bible, do the Bible, and trust the Bible.
This word that Ezra knew so well, and he believed in and he trusted and he was obedient to, this word would proclaim that God would send a Messiah. That he would send one who would come to be God's representative. That he would send one who would be the perfect sacrifice to pay for their sins. He would be the ultimate fulfillment of the law. The ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies. The ultimate fulfillment of God's wisdom. All of this would come together in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it's God's word that tells us that that Messiah, God's son, died on the cross in our place. To pay the price for our sins. We're going to celebrate this. Remember this, reflect on this in a moment through communion. It is God's word that reveals these important truths to us and that we can be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, the number one thing that you need in your relationship with God, you need his word. Know him. The number one thing your family needs is the word of God. The number one thing this world needs is the word of God that changes things and changes the world and brings people to salvation through Jesus Christ. And I praise God that God's word is still at work today. I wouldn't be able to stand up here and do this. It would just be empty motions or or just keeping people happy if I didn't think that God's word was powerful. It's why we look at books that a lot of people would want to ignore, a book like Ezra, to say because God's word is powerful and it is at work and we will dig into it together. God's word can still be at work in your life today. Don't neglect it. Don't overlook it. Don't ever set it aside and think it just doesn't matter. God's word is powerful and God is powerfully at work through his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You have graciously given us in your word everything we need to know about you. We who are sinners, rebels against you, who walked away from you, you reached out and said, hey, I want you to know who I am. And God, we don't always like what we see there. We don't always like what it teaches us about you. We certainly don't always like what it teaches us about us. But we need it. Because we need you and we need your work in our lives, in our churches, and in our world. And you work through your world your word in so many powerful ways. And I pray, Father, that as a church, we would continue to be rooted in your word as one of our core value states, that you would drive us more so into your word to to sink our roots down deep and to draw up our identity and our beliefs and our actions from your word. I pray that as we go into a business meeting after this service, May it be done in accordance with your word, in response to your word. May we be celebrating your faithfulness to us as you have proclaimed to us through your word. And God, as we turn now to a time of communion, I pray that you would challenge us to look again at the incredible truth from your word that we are to come together to do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ the one who came as your word prophesied to save us from our sins, the one who is your ultimate revelation of who you are, Emmanuel, God with us, and the one who is our savior, who paid the price for our sins on the cross and offers eternal life to all who believe through the power of his resurrection. We pray all this in his name. Amen.